Chapter 4 of Autobiography of an Actress by Anna Cora Mollett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. We spent but a week, one delightful week in London. How little I then thought that it would be my lot to return there to pass years, to return no longer the thoughtless, happy girl, passing unnoticed in the crowd, and enjoying every moment of her existence, but the grief-tried woman, standing where all eyes were fixed upon her, with duties, cares, professional responsibilities, and the lives of others bound up in hers. My glowing impressions of the first week in London are conveyed in the following hasty journal addressed to Mr. Mowat. One week in London. We arrived late on Thursday evening, wearied out with our eleven hours' journey from Liverpool, but dashing along the smooth roads after we had left the train, sleep was soon banished from our drooping eyelids. The gaslight shed around us a flood of radiance, which gave the city the appearance of an illumination, and every object was as distantly visible as at midday. That freshness of feeling which belongs to the inexperienced traveller imparted a zest to our slightest enjoyments. Trivial objects, which would have been glanced at unheeded by the most sophisticated, call forth from us exclamations of wondering astonishment. That we might present a somewhat more civilized appearance in this land of splendor and gaiety, we devoted Friday to shopping. A private carriage was ordered, and, with what our friend J. H. would call a very wide-awake expressions of countenance, we set out on our first drive. There were so many attractions on every side that I, at least, soon became too bewildered to know which way to turn. Aunt would cry, "'Look, look, look here!' putting her head out of one window of the carriage, while Emma ejaculated, Quick, quick, or you will miss seeing this, and forced her slight figure half out of the other. While I was trying to accomplish the impossibility of looking both ways at once, I part of the time saw nothing. Every moment of our attention was riveted by something new, the wide and cleanly streets, through which six carriages not unfrequently flew by abreast, the velocity with which the gaily colored flies and cabs, so unlike any of our vehicles at home, dashed along the macadamized roads, the liveried coachmen and footmen, who apparently form one-third of the populace, and, when not behind their master's carriages, lounge idly about the doorsteps, the palace-like shops, magnificent without and sumptuous within, rooms devoted to millinery and mantua-making, furnished as gorgeously and as tastefully as drawing-rooms at home. Everything, in turn, awakened our astonishment and admiration. We could hardly say with what we were most charmed, unless it was the splendid buildings with which London is as thickly studded as the Queen's crown with jewels. A particular delight to me were the little sparrows and swallows, which, in spite of all this pomp and splendor, hopped tamely about in the streets, 
chirping most musically as they gathered straws or threads to build their nest within the roofs of the houses. I amused myself by flinging bits of worsted out the window and watching the fearless little creatures as they alighted, almost at the feet of some passer-by, to pick up these treasures. The attendance in London is excellent. You are always at liberty to fancy yourself a princess, for you are treated as one, but you must pay as princesses do, or are supposed to do. Before your coachman can jump from his seat, the door is opened by some little rogue, the steps let down, and his hat touched significantly. If you take no notice of this, he plainly asks you to spare something for the drinking of your health. His manner very markedly implies that thus alone can its preservation be secured. Three or four waiters in tights and pumps attend you to your carriage, but you are expected to slip some silver in their hands for handing you in or even picking up your handkerchief. The very playbills at the theatres are sold by men who run beside your carriage and crowd around to force them upon you before you alight. Everybody is fed, and for the slightest service you must cross the doer's hand with silver. We spent the whole of Friday in making purchases and strolling through bazaars and shops. I must give you some idea of the expedition of London dressmakers. At five o'clock we drove to a court dressmaker, that I might be measured for a dress to be worn the next evening at the opera. In eight minutes, three of which were passed in astonishment at my giving my name as a married woman, I was fitted and in the carriage again. The dress came home the next morning and became me à merveilleux. Friday evening we visited the Olympic Theatre. With Madame Vestris we were all of us charmed. I now understood why she is not appreciated in America. This is her sphere. She is the planet around which her satellites move. Drawing light from her, they shine themselves, and thus add to her luster. She is nothing alone. She must have a certain entourage to develop and set forth her powers. One could discern a woman's taste and a woman's hand in all the most minute arrangements of this theatre. There is just enough light to give proper effect. The scenery and dresses were historically appropriate. Every character of the play, even down to the postilions and waiters, were well sustained. The illusion was thus rendered perfect. The entertainment consisted of a series of light pieces by turns serious or comic, each, like Miss Edgeworth's tales, with its moral, and filled with patriotic and loyal sentiments, which drew down thunders of applause from the attentive audience. Madame Vestris herself sang a little ballad, commencing Here's a Health to Her Majesty, in the most bewitching manner. A large portion of the audience stood while she was singing, I presume in token of their loyalty, and she was again and again encored. The theatre is very small, but a perfect bijou. The only light, excepting those on stage, proceeds from one large chandelier suspended from the ceiling. Here, as at the entrance 
of every other place of public amusement her majesty's officers are stationed and prevent disturbance on saturday morning we drove around somerset square a magnificent edifice formerly a palace but now denigrated into law offices when the building was in progress a watch fell from the pocket of a maison on the roof and lodged between two stones near the third-story window and yet remains distinctly visible but beyond reach we then wended our way to st paul's cathedral second only to st peter's at rome where shall i find the words to describe to you this stupendous pile here followed a long account which i shall omit st paul's has been so frequently and so much more ably described from the cathedral we drove to the tower with the latter i was greatly disappointed perhaps because the impressions left by the former were still so fresh upon my mind i thought the tower bore a strong resemblance to some vast museum we were conducted about by an attendant warden in the queen's livery there was a golden crown with the letters v r victoria regina embroidered on the back of his coat he made his explanatory remarks in the set phrase and monotonous tone of an automation this tower was formerly a royal residence but since the reign of elizabeth has been occupied as a state prison royal arsenal and a place of safety for the jewels of the crown from the tower we drove to the tunnel i should like an estimate to be made of the number of steps which we ascended and descended that day it could hardly fall short of a thousand a sort of exercise which gives one a capital idea of the treadmill you are aware that the tunnel is a capricious roadway excavated under the thames the descent is long and wearisome the tunnel is now eight hundred and seventy feet in length and its entire length is to be one thousand three hundred feet the river has several times broken in and much impeded the progress of the work we had no time to remain there for it was late in the afternoon we drove back to the hotel dined hastily and then made our toilettes for the italian opera the opera company only play twice a week strange to say saturday is the most fashionable night the audience were all en costume du bal the opera house is about three times the size of our park theatre it has five tiers of boxes the audience are mostly an assemblage of nobility i do not quite understand how it is their boxes can be hired by paying a sufficiently exorbitant price we obtain the duchess of grosvenor's box without difficulty the queen was present but our republican curiosity was not gratified for she sat directly beneath our loge the opera was lucia de lamamore which you are very familiar but you are not familiar with the almost inspired tones of persiani that charm and electrify her audience by turns her mad scene was painfully powerful terribly beautiful one or two of the airs have haunted me ever since we have heard no such voices in america as those of tambernini or rubiani the next day being sunday was indeed a day of rest 
we attend St. Martin's Church. Early on Monday morning, we started anew on sightseeing expeditions. Our first visit was to the Colosseum. The panorama, which represents a view of London from the top of St. Paul's Cathedral, is very superb. After spending some time in a minute examination, we were taken up to the top of the Colosseum in the curious ascending room which rises from story to story without any perceptible motion. Afterwards, we visited the salon, where there are many exquisite specimens of sculpture, then the conservatories, the Swiss cottage, the Alpine glen, the waterworks, and the gardens. In the Swiss cottage, we sat upon the chair which was made for Queen Adelaide when she was about to visit the Colosseum. In the same chair, Victoria has reposed. Through the zoological gardens, we rambled for nearly four hours and were forced to leave without feeling as though we had seen all that was worthy of attention. From the gardens, we drove to Hyde Park to see the Queen. A large concourse of people were assembled at the gates for the same purpose. We were disappointed in seeing Her Majesty, but fully replayed by the scene itself. I believe no resort in London affords so excellent an opportunity of reviewing the fashionable world. The spacious gravel roads were covered with ladies and gentlemen, mounted on magnificent horses and followed by their grooms. Our simplicity-loving eyes were almost dazzled by the fanciful and sometimes fantastic liveries and the rich coloring of the gorgeous equipages that roll by in endless succession. Many of these carriages were of two different hues intermingled. Others were of the most delicate pink, blue, light maroon, and I have even seen scarlet. The arms of the nobility to whom they belonged are painted on the panels, and their crest embroidered in gold on the hammer cloth. Some of the coachmen and footmen wore white powdered wigs and cocked hats. They all looked to me as though they had just started up out of Cinderella's pumpkin. Opposite the central arch of the grand entrance to Hyde Park is a colossal statue of Achilles erected by the English ladies in honor of the Duke of Wellington. We had left the hotel immediately after breakfast, but only returned home in time to dine by candlelight. We then visited Madame Tussaud's exhibition of wax figures and spent the evening in promenading through her large and brilliantly illuminated salon. One group of statues consisted of the royal family and other celebrated personages. Victoria is represented as she appeared at her coronation. She is seated on a throne, the crown on her brow, in one hand the scepter, and in the other a golden ball. The Lord Bishop of Canterbury is imploring a blessing, Lord Melbourne holding the sword of state, the Duke of Devonshire, His Highness the Duke of Cambridge, and the Duchess of Kent, and all other members of the nobility are grouped around. In the midst of another group stands the lamented Princess Charlotte of Wales. Her face wears an expression of the most angelic sweetness. Another group is composed of Mary, Queen of Scots, refusing to sign the document by which she renounces her crown. Baron Ruthven, in a ferocious attitude, is attempting to compel her. The good Sir Robert Melville, endeavoring to appease his wrath. 
and a venerable monk gazing with indignation at the brutal baron who insults his mistress among the statues were those of shakespeare byron scott kimball mrs siddons and Brown. one of the greatest curiosities is the figure of the beautiful madame st amareth who rejected the disgraceful solicitation of robespierre and thus became the victim of his fury she is stretched upon a couch in a dying attitude her bosom gently heaves to and fro like that of an expiring person you might almost fancy that you felt her breath several of the statues move their heads so naturally that we at first mistook them for human beings a mistake of precisely the opposite character occasioned us some confusion and no little merriment an elderly lady was seated near the figure of voltaire intently gazing in his face i placed my hand upon her shoulder and said to emma oh look at this one it is capitally executed the supposed statue turned its eyes upon me and rose up to a terrible height as i thought with an annihilating expression i did not sink into the earth as a tall gentleman seemed to imagine that i was bound to do but as soon as i could recover from the sensation of half-frightened surprise i hurriedly begged her pardon she swept by us without a word who could have helped laughing the adjoining room a veritable chamber of horrors represents the interior of the bastille it is filled with heads of persons taken after their execution the first was marat who was put to death by charlotte corday then came the heads of robespierre of stuart and his wife barriere etc all of them taken a few hours after execution a model of the guillotine completed this most detestable exhibition you will probably remember that the fatal instrument was invented by mr guillotine a french physician who actually died of grief caused by the horrible use made of his invention tuesday it stormed and we devoted the morning to letter-writing in the afternoon we visited the national historical gallery and miss linwood's exhibition in the evening we attended st james theatre the theatre itself was worthy of all admiration not so the performance the actors were monkeys and dogs i confess that even the novelty of the exhibition could not lend it a charm our first visit on wednesday was to the new house of lords the old one was burned in the late fire we saw the throne which victoria occupies when she opens parliament set on the wool-sack and a very comfortable good-natured sort of seat it is appropriated to the lord chancellor and examined the steps where the duke of essex stumbled on approaching the queen from the house of lords with our expectations raised to the highest pitch we crossed to westminster abbey i shall not even attempt a description of what appears to me indescribable i will only tell you of the monument that made the deepest impression it was that of lord and lady nightingale in the chapel of st john the expiring form of lady nightingale lies in the arms of her agonized husband while grim-visaged death 
steals from beneath a tomb and aims his unerring dart at the bosom of the dying woman her husband extends one arm imploringly to the king of terrors and with the other folds his fragile wife to the bosom which he cannot protect her from that one foe we lingered a long time in the poet's corner and talked of the illustrious dead and we sat on the chair in which her majesty and preceding sovereigns were crowned from the abbey we drove to the celebrated british museum a vast receptacle of millions of wonders both of art and nature here the rest of the day was profitably consumed we had only time to take a short drive through hyde park before dinner we were too much fatigued to visit any place of amusement in the evening and retired early early on thursday morning we drove to kensington gardens which adjoin hyde park there is a lovely quietude about these beautiful gardens which contrasts strangely with their noisy and more fashionable vicinity kensington palace to which the gardens are attached was the former residence of the duchess of kent and princess victoria it has little pretensions to grandeur it is built of old-fashioned looking brick and reared with neither elegance nor taste from the gardens we drove to richmond enchanting richmond thompson's seasons were in our minds and on our lips and their delightful association enchanted the charm of every prospect i think this was the most agreeable drive i have ever yet taken we all declared that there was no place we cared to visit after richmond and there we spent the remainder of the day wandering about in a state of dreamy delight and chiding the setting sun which we viewed from richmond hill for warning us to return homewards on friday we were occupied in packing we were to leave for hamburg in the evening as we stood in the midst of an army of trunks in the very heat of battle a battle waged against the impossibility of making them contain more than they could hold h entered hastily and told us that the queen was expected to visit the national gallery of paintings a crowd had already collected at a short distance if we made haste we might see her our toilettes were rapidly completed and we formed a portion of the expectant crowd for an hour and a half we stood patiently waiting listening to the doubts expressed by some and the confident assurances of others that her majesty would shortly pass we then walked to st james square more than a mile off in hopes of seeing her there again disappointed we returned to our former station but after remaining there another hour we were forced to return to the hotel to finish our packing the queen passed three hours afterwards on the loveliest moonlit night i have ever beheld we bade adieu to london with the earnest hope that we might one day return End of chapter four